0: hey guys and welcome back if you're new here hi my name is liz and i'll be your host on this strange journey through lore legends and the most terrific thing of all laundry although i am still a little under the weather i do hope everyone is getting ready for halloween as it is only a week and a half away i know we are because we may have a trick-or-treat hiding in our laundry pile for all of you i know you can't see me but know that i'm over here winking like someone that just got poked in the eye So listen out for some updates as All Hallows Eve gets closer. During spooky season, I know a lot of people like to visit locations that incite fear and dread. Oftentimes, these are haunted houses that allude to being dangerous and scary, but are nothing more than an elaborate production. A reoccurring theme in haunted houses are hospitals and asylums. But what if I told you that such a place actually exists? A hospital so vile and atrocious that it is said to be home to more spirits than anyone can count as the grounds hold more than 25,000 unmarked graves. If you haven't already, grab those baskets, restart that washer, and find a comfy seat because we are visiting the ghost of Central State Asylum. During the first decades of the 19th century, movements to reform prisons construct public schools and establish state-run facilities for the mentally ill spread across the country. Georgia lawmakers replied in 1837 by enacting legislation to establish a state lunatic idiot and epileptic asylum. Construction of the hospital, which is located in Milledgeville, Georgia, was completed in October 1842, and the first patient was admitted later that year. Politicians had intended the asylum to become self-sustaining, with healthier patients paying for their own care. They also hoped that rehabilitated patients would be able to rejoin society as soon as possible. The institutionist family paradigm of patient care argued that hospitals were best organized when they resembled extended families. This model was used at Milledgeville Hospital from 1845 until 1879 under the direction of Dr. Thomas A. Green. Green ate with workers and patients every day and did away with physical constraints like shackles and ropes. Despite these advancements, patient treatment frequently differed from social status, with richer patients receiving more attention and treatment than impoverished charges. One rich patient lived in Green's home, rather than an asylum ward, and married into the superintendent's family. The hospital's population shifted from the highly disturbed to the chronically ill and biologically crippled, many of whom were Civil War soldiers with little possibility of successfully returning to their families. In 1866, freed African Americans were also admitted to the facility, which had previously only served white patients. In 1872, the Georgia Lunatic Asylum had a patient-to-doctor ratio of 112, a figure that would not improve for nearly a century, when local communities began sending unwanted or or problematic inhabitants to the asylum, regardless of their diagnosis, the asylum's patients' population grew dramatically. Many freed people were considered incapable for independent existence on the basis of scientific, racist concepts. The asylum's population grew even faster in 1877, when the institution no longer required patients or their families to pay for their care. Under Superintendent Dr. Theopolis O'Powell, a famous psychiatric scholar who served from 1879 to 1907, the facility adjusted to the expansion by establishing more specific methods of diagnosis and instituting distinct ward placements. Powell segregated black patients in their own building, one of several additional brick buildings and various auxiliary facilities built to accommodate the increased patient load. However, new construction frequently failed to keep up with congested wards. An issue worsened when the African-American building burned down in 1897. Powell had no choice but to house black patients in underground tunnels until the structure could be repaired. The Georgia Lunatic Asylum was renamed the Georgia state sanitarium the same year. Due to overcrowding, infectious diseases such as tuberculosis proliferated, promoting a legislative inquiry into sanitarium administration in 1909. Nonetheless, counties continued to send unwanted citizens to the sanitarium, and the increase in population meant a decline in service quality. Feeding the sanitarium's inhabitants, which reached 3,206 patients by the beginning of 1910, grew unacceptably expensive so officials attempted to become self-sufficient. A portion of the vast hospital grounds had been set aside for crop cultivation, and administrators made patients do the difficult task of farming these acres. The work required little therapy from the professionals, but was frequently beneficial to patients who would return to agricultural life after being discharged. The large number of patients also resulted in a pattern of deliberate neglect, in which hospital staff satisfied their charge's basic daily needs, but were unable to give proper care for their ailments. The sanitarium's name was changed to Milledgeville State Hospital by the state legislator in 1929, reflecting a focus on rehabilitation for its 5,000-plus patients. However, substantial interventions such as lobotomies, insulin shock, and electroconvulsive therapy without sedation became prevalent in order to manage the increasing patient load. Other treatments included isolation therapy, ice baths, and straitjackets, if all else failed. By 1940, federal funds had aided in the construction of needed new structures, but the Great Depression had pushed the hospital's patient count over 9,000. With the introduction of psychiatric medications, the length of stay was lowered and home return became more realistic for acute patients. But the ultimate goal of reducing the patient population collided with the institution's political self-interest. Politicians frequently interfered with the hospital, with Governor Eugene Talmage firing superintendents on the spur of the moment, and the Speaker of the House, Roy V. Harris, and Senator Culver Kidd of Milledgeville accused of coercing hospital administrators into hiring political patrons to fill jobs that would be jeopardized if the patient population was reduced. Dr. Y. H. Yarborough resigned in 1948, joking that he was the only superintendent who hasn't been kicked out or carried out feet first in a casket. By the late 1950s, the hospital housed approximately 11,800 patients on average, making it the nation's largest mental hospital, second only to New York's Pilgrim State Hospital. In 1959, Atlanta Constitution reporter Jack Nelson, who would go on to win a Pulitzer Prize for his coverage, published a series of damning articles that revealed several abuses at Milledgeville State Hospital, including experimental drugs being given to patients without their or their family's consent, a nurse performing major surgery without supervision, and staff and doctors being drunk while on duty. The investigation also found that only 48 doctors were caring for the thousands of patients and not a single one held a license to practice. In fact, several staff members were patients who were employed fresh out of the institution. Governor Ernest Vanderveer Jr. responded by forming a commission to investigate and recommend legislative action. Despite worries that another probe would not significantly improve the hospital staffing crisis or patient care, state officials took action. Milledgeville State Hospital was renamed Central State Hospital in 1967 to represent its central location as part of a regional system of six further mental institutions. Patients were gradually freed from Central State as the treatment style shifted from medical to mixed therapy and the population fell below 10,000 for the first time in two decades in 1968. The hospital closed its farm the following year and the land was divided among the other state organizations, including the Georgia Department of Corrections. Advocates for the mentally ill, particularly Rosalind and Jimmy Carter, fought for greater flexibility in reintegrating patients into society over the last three decades of the 20th century. Olmsted v. L.C., a 1999 U.S. Supreme Court, court case involving Georgia's mental institutions advanced this trend by ordering hospitals to allow patients to leave if community care was possible and the individual sought it. In addition, advocates started identifying and marking thousands of unmarked graves at Central State Hospital. Georgians suffering from mental illness faced additional obstacles in the first decades of the 21st century. Years of funding cuts at the state's seven hospitals resulted in significant staff shortages and multiple avoidable patient fatalities. In 2007, an Atlanta Journal-Constitution report titled A Hidden Shame sparked another public outcry and a threatened lawsuit by the U.S. Department of justice against the state. Georgia's hospitals were mostly closed as part of the settlement in favor of community therapy. However, with state finances depleted during the Great Recession, community treatment programs had many of the same challenges as the old hospitals, including low funding and poor care standards. Nonetheless, at the beginning of 2010, only 30 patients remained in Central State. And by the end of the year, only a section for temporarily housing and treating mentally ill criminal offenders remained. The dozens of crumbling buildings are all that remains of Central State Hospital, with patients all but gone. The site is now a hodgepodge of state and private ownership with a local redevelopment body in charge of much of it. Preservationists have worked to save numerous remaining structures and the Georgia Trust for Historic Preservation has named Central State Hospital to its annual Places of Peril list twice. Given Central State's dark history, it's hardly surprising that there have been reports of paranormal activity on the campus. Apparitions, disembodied voices in the region, cries coming from abandoned structures, phantom touches, breathing on the backs of people's necks and even suspicions of demonic rituals have all been reported. Two women who came to visit the site stated that someone or something was hurling objects at them from the upper floors while they were outside. Another visitor reported feeling a sudden chill which is sometimes connected with spirits. Another visitor reported the stench of rotting flesh which they believe is a sign of the presence of a demon. In addition to the others Cedar Lane Cemetery which is located nearby accommodates 2,000 graves. There is no documented evidence that this region of the grounds is haunted. As of April 2022, the three-bedroom 1920s bungalow that once used to house the doctors on the campus can now be rented out nightly. The macabre cottage is situated right across the street from the hospital. No claims of it being haunted have surfaced at this time. You can also take a tour of the grounds in some of the buildings as tours are held once a month. Do you dare stay a night or wander its halls? Well, friends... It's that time again. I want to thank each and every one of you for listening in. Be sure to like and subscribe so you get notified when the new episodes drop. If you drop us a comment or leave us a review, it would be greatly appreciated. If you haven't joined our Facebook group or checked out our Instagram, this is where we post pictures of the locations that we cover and provide some fun updates and we get to interact with all of you throughout the week. We would love to have you there. Also, If you have a suggestion or just want to reach out and say hi, you can reach us at lorelegendslaundry at gmail.com. Until next time, bye guys. And don't forget to switch the laundry.